I have saved myself a lot of sleepless nights Good. and tears and text messages and pull-ups and all <laughs> Pulling up on people like I have saved myself all of that by guarding my heart um, and not expecting too much or giving too much too soon. And I think I've said this to you before where I am the person that whatever a man says he is able to offer me, I expect nothing more Mm -hmm. and nothing less. I do not try to convince I do not try to change. I do not try to cook my way to your heart. We put porn to shame. <laughs> the womb isn't just about where I give Talk birth to about babies. It. Talk. The womb is about where we give birth to perfect. Talk. I was basically all of her nevers. I never imagined my journey would inspire people all over the world. You have set a standard in love. I was dating a young lady who helped me heal. Wow. This woman is a ride or die. The conversations have really helped me to change my perspective on relationships. I had 19 attorneys at one time that were speaking into my ear. 19, 19 attorneys. attorneys. My, my, my last relationship, you know, it did a number on me. What you did not know is I had a whole little situation lined up that evening. Your transparency is literally setting people free. And you're unique. You ain't like nobody else. I, I noticed that right away. You can make me cry. <laughs> Um, thank you. I received that. Let one of them Barbie doll bodies walk over here. He's gonna say, Dear future wifey. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They're gonna go right in that box. <laughs> I'm Lateris R. Whitfield, and welcome to the Dear Future Wifey Podcast. Welcome to the Dear Future Wifey Podcast. I'm your host, Lateris R. Whitfield. Hey, before we get started, are you still shacking up with us? Hey, if you're still shacking up with us, come on. Can we just go ahead and make a commitment and hit that subscription button and subscribe? Make sure you turn on your notification bell so you'll be notified about upcoming episodes. Well, season five, we started off really, really great. And this episode is going to keep the momentum. I'm so excited to talk to my homie. When we get on the phone, we talk for hours and it's just an amazing time. So without further ado, welcome to the Dear Future Wifey podcast. My homie, Rochelle Ritchie. How you feel? You, you nervous? A little bit, because this is a little bit out of my comfort zone of podcast. Normally, I'm used to television, arguing with, you know, conservatives about politics, so... Or arguing with people on Clubhouse. Or that. Yeah, yeah. See, see, Rochelle, if <laughs> if y'all ever catch Rochelle on Clubhouse, this, this nice little meek, mild person that's probably going to show up on this episode, we know, you know, she is she a straight thug. She an audio thug. Why you be going off on Clubhouse like that? You know, because it's necessary. (laughs) It's really necessary. Like, people really just have, people are just mean. And I I feel like sometimes I got to kind of match that meanness. (laughs) And I have to let them know that don't let what you see on television fool you, okay? I'm just trying not to get an FCC violation. (laughs) But the things I'm saying on Clubhouse is really what I want to say on television. But... You say you don't want to get no FCC uh, violations? Yeah, I don't want no FCC violations. You know, I love when I see you uh, on on television or whatnot. Highly intelligent, absolutely brilliant. And you go toe-to-toe with some of the most brilliant minds out here, but they seem to be kind of ignorant in their thoughts, but they're, you know. 
Brilliant. Pretty brilliant. Yeah, that's, that's I, I think they're brilliant. Well, they're brilliant because in their own field, you know what I'm saying, they're very knowledgeable. Uh, it's just that they have, they have opposing views. Yeah. They have opinions. Opinions don't make you brilliant. <laughs> I mean, especially when you're only giving that opinion for about three minutes. You know, it's a three-minute segment. You've got three people on the panel and the host. So you really got you really have about 30 seconds to, to really to, to drop a gem to and drop make people a gem. Think. And you just want to say, like, I need something that's going to make me go viral. So let me hit that, and then I'm good. That's how I think about it. I'm like, let me say, what's the one thing I want to post? I'm going to say that. I don't care about nothing else. For real. You, you actually, people premeditate that thought that they're going to have? Yes. See, I'll be wondering because it seems like <laughs> it's so impromptu, so organic, and it's like y'all just going tit for tat. And I, know I mean, sometimes I will say, sometimes it is very organic, but there are times where, you know, you do want to have that one slug that you can throw, yeah. and that's the one that's going to land, and that's the one that you're going to post. Well, you know what? We had a conversation uh, about a month ago, and we were talking about um, this huge change that you have gone through over the year. Um, but actually last two years and I asked you, I said, Rochelle, who are you? Who is Rochelle Richie? And, um, and the, what you said in that moment is why I wanted you on the podcast. And the title of this episode is called discovering self. Mm -hmm. What did you say in that conversation? I don't know. You don't know what you said? No, I said, I don't know. Like, I don't know who I am. Okay. Yes. You said, I don't know who I am. And what was so surprising uh, to me is that you seem to be that woman that has it all together. You know, your image is great. Yeah. When I hear you speak, you speak uh, <laughs> intelligently and everything. And then for you to mm -hmm. say, I don't know who I am was quite um, liberating for me to hear you say that. But of course, I assumed that it had to be liberating for you. So why do you say you don't know who you are at this point in life? I think that it's because I don't know who I want to be. I know who I've been, but I think the last two years, everybody has sort of gone through this metamorphosis, if right. you will, and has, you know, have had to redefine and discover who they are. And I know for me personally, the last two years have been extremely challenging. And in those challenges, I've learned a lot about myself, a lot of good but a lot of bad hmm. um, because when, you know, when you're isolated um, because when COVID started, we were all kind of isolated. I was living in Harlem at the time and um, you're by yourself. And when you spend a lot of time by yourself and you have an idle mind, yeah, um, you start to see things about yourself that are like, who is that person? Why would she think something like that? Why would she react this way to certain to certain things and then I had to go back and look at it from a career perspective too because I've been on television I started out as a television reporter in 2004 and I've lived all over the country I've lived in Washington State Oklahoma Florida Baltimore um, New York um, you know I've lived everywhere and being on television, you start to become a character. Yeah. And I have been a character for a long time in front of people. I've been playing this role. And when COVID hit and I lost my job, I had to leave New York. And we'll get, I'm sure we'll get into like my dad getting yeah. sick, different things like that. I was no longer playing a character. It's like, this was real life. This is you. 
this is me. Um, and so now I'm trying to figure out who do I want to be? Um, where do I want to go? And I feel like there's a lot of ego attached to that. Um, when I left television news in 2015, I went and joined the state's attorney's office in Baltimore City. Um, and that was during the Freddie Gray riots. And it was really hard for me because my ego was still attached to being seen. Yeah, talk about it. And now I'm going through this period of time where if you go on my Instagram, I'm archiving stuff all the time. I have 500 posts, but you might only see 30 on my page <laughs> because I'm archiving stuff because I'm like, who is this? No, no, no. I, really? like, I just don't want to be seen. And I've been denying television hits because I'm just like, I just don't want to play that role anymore. Like I want to have more genuine conversations because when you go through this process of discovering who you are, yeah. all that other stuff just seems so basic and meaningless that I want to have real intimate conversations, not just sitting on television arguing about politics. I just, I'm over it. So how did you get thrust? Uh, how did you get thrusted into politics? So, um, I've always been very opinionated. <laughs> I can't tell, Rochelle. I've, I've always I've, been extremely I've opinionated. I have always um, been unafraid to use my voice to stand up for what is right. I've, I mean, I've always been that way. Tell me, ever since you was a little kid? No, I was a very shallow girl. Oh, so this, re this, this emerged around what age? Probably around high school, around that time, college, different things like that. Started and being I, more vocal. Yeah, and I was always willing to say what other people didn't want to say. And I really didn't care how you felt about it. <laughs> Did it get it. you in a lot of trouble? No. It didn't? Mm -mm. Didn't get you no fights or nothing? No. Okay. No, because I was telling the truth. <laughs> so what you go, you can't fight the truth. A lot of people don't like the truth, though. They you may don't, say it. but nobody's going to put hands on me, so it's fine. <laughs> she said, let's so, be clear now. Let's be clear. Ain't nobody finna go put no hands on me. No. All right. But um, I think I've always been this way. But I will say um, that it's... <laughs> It's something that I just feel like I have to do because a lot of people are afraid to use their voice yeah. and I'm not. And I think that being a woman and being a black woman, there's this fear of, oh, you don't want to, you know, people are going to think you have mm -hmm. an attitude. People are going to think you're angry. I don't care. I am angry. So I'm going to act angry. I do have an attitude because I got an attitude about it. So I'm not going to try and, you know, censor my emotions and my feelings to make other people comfortable, white, black, or whatever. So why do you feel like it was a role that you were playing then if this is authentically who you are, how you feel about certain subject matters, and you've always been outspoken from high school on up, then how is this deemed a role that you were playing on quote-unquote television? Well, I wouldn't say that part is the role. It's what people think that I am. Yes. They think, like how you said, you know, yeah. you're all put together, you're this and that, yeah. you're intelligent. All those things are very, very true, but I also suffer from depression. I, offer, I also suffer from anxiety. Okay. Um, there are times where I literally, if I'm having a depressive episode, I can't get out the bed, but nobody sees the yeah. ugly side and they just see my social media posts or they see me on television. They think, oh, everything is all, you know, well, yeah. she's got, you know, she's this, she's that, whatever. But it's like, you don't know what happens when I go home. That's good. And you also don't know what happens when I get off of Fox News and I'm getting 
called the N word, Mm -hmm. you know, the B word, all these different things that I have to internalize emotionally while already dealing with my own mental health issues. So it's a lot. You and I talked about something and it just popped up. You went on, uh, I'm trying to find the best way to say this. You went on this popular guy's platform and um, to voice your opinion about his thoughts towards women. People can deduct who this person is. And what happened in that, in that uh, situation? Well, to be clear, I didn't go on his platform. It was on Clubhouse. Yeah, it was on Clubhouse. It was Clubhouse. But he was, mo- he was, in, he was one of the mods in the... Yeah, he was a moderator. Um, you know, when I went on that stage... The reason what I what people don't understand that I was really trying to get at, and this was kind of my own fault, fault because I should have known that I needed to kind of like when I go on Fox News, I got to hit that point real and then, quick and because then off. and then because I know they're going to interrupt me and cut me off. So it's like, let me get out the main thing I want to say. <laughs> so I should have used that same sort of strategy uh, when I was speaking to him. Um, but what happened is. What I was really trying to get at in that conversation is that, one, the video that I had talked to the young woman that was called Average at Best. I talked to her on the phone named Jessica. And when I talked to her, she told me that she didn't know she was being recorded. And I was like, well, what do you mean everybody's recorded? Yeah. And she said, well, I knew my voice was being recorded, but I didn't know that the Zoom and my image were being recorded. So when she says, can you see me? She's thinking just he can see her. Yeah. Not millions of people. Yeah. So she told me um, that she had to seek therapy because her business had been threatened. She'd been threatened, all these different things. And so what I wanted to get to was, you know, I was asking, have you reached out to her to be like, I'm sorry, it went that way or whatever. But he doesn't care. No, he don't care at all. He doesn't care at all that you are causing psychological damage. You are not a mental health expert in any capacity. At all. And you are exposing people who don't know that they're being exposed. The the voice, I I got a PhD. I talked to her as well. She lives out in California. Um, she says that when she says I'm a PhD, it's because in the original conversation, he asked her, what's your highest level of education? And she said, I'm a PhD. It was never, I'm boasting and bragging about, I got a degree in this and that and blah, blah, blah. It wasn't that, but that is how mm-hmm. her sound is being used. So when I went onto the stage, I wanted to confront him about that because I feel like a lot of people didn't know that this woman being called average at best had no idea that she was being recorded visually for everybody to see and that her name was going to be used. Um, Cause you know, when you go on zoom, you can see the name yep, or whatever. Yep. Didn't know that her name was going to be there. That's how people start to track down who she was and who she business. was. And I feel like as a black woman, um, I need to stand up and be like, that's not cool. I'm not mad at that. It's not cool. And so, yeah, he threw me off the stage and his minions, you know, were all excited about it. Um, They started sending me messages about, you know, um, you know, you're a, you're a, you're a, you're a, 
alpha female and all this other kind of stuff. And your father must have been a beta because you didn't know how to take care of him. My father just died from COVID. Exactly. Which um, is what we're going to talk about. And that's yeah. why I say people say some of the most hurtful things, not realizing in real time you're actually dealing with real stuff. Yeah. And it's so, and it's like you can have your platform, but I believe in being responsible yes. with people. Yes. I believe that even if you know it is, um, you know, it's it's tense. It maybe might even get disrespectful. I still feel at some point, if you're making money off of people, uh, and and really you're you're making money off of people. black trauma. That's yeah. what's being made. That's yep. what it is. Um, I feel like you and you still have a responsibility because if something had happened to me or to her, it all started because of you. Exactly. And so I did this. Um, well, first, I'm going to talk about this. That video of Jessica is what put him on the map. Isn't that crazy? Because it that was the first video he ever had that went viral. Uh, it went crazy. His following on Instagram, I mean, on YouTube went from whatever it was. Now it's one point something million or something. But it happened from that stuff. And, and that just built his platform to have a louder voice to abuse more people. To the point to where um, it was this one girl that so this lady DM me this video of this girl named Nicole Smith. And Nicole, he just, he talked so bad to her that it got personal. It got really personal to me. Here it was, this, this, this Christian woman, she's 42, 43 years old. She was talking about how she's been absent for 21 years. She's trying to do stuff the way, uh, you know, from a faith-based perspective, what God instructed her to do. And she said that, hey, you know, I'm single. I'm, I'm, I want to be married and all this. And he was like, Girl, your eggs are fried. Your eggs are this. Your blah blah blah. And he's just going off on her and talking. You need to. You need to get that away. Why are you holding it up? Nobody like just. And I'm sitting there listening. Wow. And I'm going. You know what? Like it, it made me wow. mad. And I'm watching this girl ask his advice about what to do. And instead of like disconnecting, be like, you know what? Don't talk to me like that. You know what I'm saying? And it's the brokenness that caused her to even seek his quote unquote counsel, which is problematic in, a, in and of itself. But it hurt so bad that he would destroy her like that verbally uh, to the point to where I said, hey, we need to go find her. I want to get her, bring on the podcast and literally edify her, restore her, build her up. And the platform that destroyed her in front of uh millions of people now i want to be the voice to say come on let me let me tell you who you really are let me tell you how i see you and how god sees you because that's what's so unfortunate so i applaud you for actually uh champion the cause of saying hey listen I, I'm, I'm gonna stand up to i'm gonna I'm, I'm stand up to the bully because that's basically what you did on clubhouse is say i'm gonna stand up to him and um and be the voice for the voiceless and so uh when you and i talked about that several months ago i was like wow that's that's pretty dope you know what i'm saying but what bothered me again is that now you became the victim because now the minions are trying to threaten well, you and talk crazy to you yeah but you know i don't the only thing that i really disliked is the fact that he recorded so at that time, you couldn't record you on could Clubhouse. Not record on Clubhouse. Right. He recorded that conversation. Let me say it like this: Someone recorded that conversation, right, and sent it to World Star. The only reason that people even started reaching out to me with threats and all this other kind of threatening—oh, you deserve to be raped—all that kind of stuff, craziness. 
Um, the only reason why is because someone recorded it, sent it to World Star. And when I went to World Star and I clicked on the link, it linked directly to his account, which obviously we know the more clicks that you get, the more money you get. And yeah. why not use World Star, right? Yeah. In order to make that happen. So I recorded um, and it showed my picture. This person had went to my profile so you could see like, information about me in the video. And that's how people were able to find out who I was. Because Clubhouse wasn't that big no, then at that no. point where I would be flooded with messages um, messages like that. And then when I sent, um, I you know, I reached out to an attorney about it. The next thing I know, the video, he blurred it. So you could not see my face. You could not see my name and all those kind of things. And I could have pursued more legally. Yeah. But I was like, it's not even necessarily worth it because I deal with this from white supremacists. Yeah. So if I'm dealing with it from misogynistic and abusive men, fine, whatever. Um, but it's disappointing when you're dealing with the same sort of attacks that you get from white supremacists and you're getting that from black men. <sighs> so then what <laughs> happened? How did you, yeah. Cause I, I think about that. I'm like, man, isn't that, you know, typically in these situ situations I'll stand in proxy and, and apologize on behalf of the guys that have, you don't wronged have to you. apologize. Oh, well, yeah. And that's what I was saying. I was thinking in my mind, I was like, you know what? It's just, he, people like that need to apologize on their own behalf. You know what I'm saying? Because at the end of the day, it's like, there has to be a, uh, a reckoning that happens where you look at yourself and say, you know what? I've been destroying these women. I've been destroying this toxic masculinity is affecting all these other men and they're going out believing what they believe. And, and you know what's so funny about that? <laughs> is it, he's not even talking to those kind of men. I know it, but they, but they, they grab they a hold are of not even in the caliber of, of the, men uh, of the that 3% the, talking to at all. They don't even have tailored suits. <laughs> They've never seen a tailor before. They never have a network of people that that, no. that, that are uh, high earners or whatever. It, it's so annoying. Yeah. I just, it's but, trash. But that's the part that, that grieves me as a black man is that this ideology is what's been shared and spread. And um, unfortunately, you know, y'all are the, become the punching bags of that ideology. Um, and so as you've been discovering self, um, you hit a really major transition in your life with a loss that you touched on earlier. What was that loss and what happened? Deep breath. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, let's just, let's just tell the, the story from like the beginning of just literally 2020, um, up until, well, yeah, 2020 until now. So, um, in 2020, I was living in New York. I was happy. I love New York. I lived in Harlem. Um, not too far from the Apollo and COVID hit and I was working at, um, a university, um, in New York and COVID hit and we started working from home around March or so. Um, one of my friends and colleagues, um, got sick and we were on a conference call and I kept hearing somebody cough and I'm like, I text her, I got I text her and I'm like, girl, who is that coughing all in the phone? She's like, oh, it's me. It's me. I'm sorry. She's like, it's probably, you know, my blood pressure medicine. But at that time, any little sneeze or cough, you were like, you should go to the doctor. You, yep. know, you should get checked out. And she said, um, 
no, you know, I'm okay. It's just this medicine I'm taking. I'm like, okay. So I checked on her later that night and I texted her and I was just like, hey, how you feeling? She was like, I'm okay. Just laying here, just not feeling well sick. And I'm like, you know, Alicia, maybe you should go to the, go to the hospital. She's like, no, I'm good, girl. I'm good. Two days later, I get a call from my supervisor that she was found unresponsive. Oh, wow. In her, um, in her apartment. And she was a dean um, uh, at the college, associate dean. And um, she was found unresponsive. And she died. And she was 36. So that was March. Then on April, literally, what's today? April, what are we? Okay. Mm -hmm. April, end of April, get a call from my cousin that my father is being rushed to the hospital. Um, and she told me that he hadn't been feeling well for a while. And I was thinking the other day, I was like, I remember that phone call where he calls me. And I was like, Daddy, I was like, what's wrong? I was like, you sound like you're in pain. He's like, oh, yes, my back is a slip disc. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, you need to, like, go rest or whatever. But he just sounded different and I got off the phone and I remember saying you know hmm, hmm. just like that was different but then I just moved on then a few days later my cousin calls me says that he's going to the hospital and he was diagnosed with pneumonia and um something else I forgot what the other thing was but as soon as they said that I was like it's COVID I just knew it was you know because Anybody at that time that was getting that, it was COVID. So um, he was in the hospital. Um, and at the time, you know, you couldn't go to the hospital mm -hmm. at all. Um, and that was the most heartbreaking part about, I think, for families um, when their loved ones got sick with COVID is that you could not be there. Yep. Um, there were people dying alone. Yep. You know, there were people that were unidentified because their family didn't even know they went to the hospital and had been diagnosed because they couldn't call. So you're doing these Zoom calls and um, I'm just like, this is this is a lot. And then he just progressively got worse and got worse and got worse. Then that's April. So March, Alicia dies. April, dad is diagnosed. We're talking about 2020? 2020. Yep. May, I lose my job. I get laid off. I'm like, what in the world? Mm -hmm. So I'm in New York and I'm like, I got to go home. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to go to my mom's house. You know, I'm calling the hospital every single day um, in Chicago to check on my dad. I was like, but I got to get home. This is bad. So I literally put, you seen coming to America. Mm -hmm. So you remember when they leave their stuff outside yep, yep. <laughs> and everybody comes to get it? Steal it. I have rented me a little van. And anything that I could not put in my van, I put outside on the corner of 135th and Madison. Okay. And I put it out there and it was gone by the time I got in my car to leave. And I drove home to my mom's house. And then I just became, everything became about my father. Um and I was calling the hospital 10 times a day. I was making decisions on surgeries because my dad wasn't married and I'm his oldest daughter. So everything kind of fell on me um, to handle. And so um, 
finally, I started to get frustrated with the hospital because I wanted to be there. And they're like, well, it's a COVID floor. I was like, I don't care. I want to be there next to my daddy. He needs to see us. He needs to see his family. So they allowed my cousin to go first because I wasn't in Chicago just yet. And then finally, I was able to go. And when I was able to go, I was at my father's side every single day. And this was this was before there was a vaccine. There was this yeah. was before they even knew what COVID they really were dealing was. With. Yeah. Um, but my mom knew that I was gonna be there and I was going to risk my own life um to be there. And so I went up to that hospital every single day. There were nineteen COVID seventeen and nineteen COVID patients on the floor, including my father. And it was like walking into NASA. It was, um, I mean, like I had to put on my, now my mom is a doctor as well. So she gave me some, some different kind of gear that you can't get. So, so I had a, I had a shield. I had the N95. I had, I, I mean, I walked in, they probably thought I was a doctor. But <laughs> exactly oh God, so they probably let me just walk on in. But when they finally let me come up, I said, you know, I understand the risk that I'm taking. And I just prayed and I said, God, just cover me and just just cover me and cover, you know, my grandfather and his wife, because I was standing with them at the time in Chicago. And um, and he did. He he kept obviously he kept me and he kept them as well. Um, And I was just (laughs) it was the hardest thing because there was nothing I could do to help him. Yeah. Um, and I didn't, we, nobody knew what they were dealing with. So he just progressively got worse, but I went up there every single day. I clipped my father's fingernails, toenails. Um, I would scrub, he was bald. So I would kind of exfoliate his skin gently to keep, you know, to make sure, you know, his skin just stayed healthy, healthy as possible. Cause when they're in the hospital, they wipe you down, but they don't really get the time, your ears and in your ears. And so I was Cleaning all the, you know, those, those parts, obviously it's my father. So I wasn't going nowhere near other stuff. <laughs> so it's still my daddy. Um, but I would also do physical therapy with him. I actually have a video of me counting, like moving his knee up and down. And I remember when I touched his leg, I mean, he was a skeleton. He was. And, um, he, um, started to lose like circulation, um, in his like fingers and toes because the blood was trying to pump his, his major um, arteries and everything like that. So I would spend hours just massaging his fingers and stuff, trying to get them to go back to a normal color, but they just started to turn black. And my father was a drummer. So music was his life. Um, and I just knew that if he lost his fingers and his toes, his livelihood would be yeah. taken away from him. So, he um <laughs> um he went through a, a series of um procedures. He had a lung wash, which is basically where they go in and they clean your lungs. And my father had six liters of blood on his lungs in his chest. So they went through one surgery and they and they got all this blood out, but then he started to bleed more. And by the time they were done with the surgery, and they probably called me about four in the morning, um they had gotten six liters of of blood off his chest and he needed a double lung transplant. Oh, his lungs were fried pretty much. Then the kidneys started to go. 
And then when you start to have additional organ failure, it is much harder for you to get a transplant um, because everything else has to be yep. healthy in order for you to get those lungs. Yep. And then, you know, um, there came a point in time where I had to make a really tough decision. And it was September, I think it was September 22nd, where the doctors came to me and, you know, obviously with my little sister and my aunt and other family members, you know, wanted to tell me that it was time and that I needed to make a decision on if I would sign the thing to do not resuscitate. And I was like, okay. So I just took it. And then on by the 24th, um, I stayed at the hospital pretty late that night. And the nurses came in to give him a bath. And I was like, okay. I was like, I'll just sit over here in the corner. Um, and I just turned and looked out the window because obviously, you know, he might have been naked or whatever. And something just told me to turn and look. And so I remember turning and just kind of looking back. And I actually was able to see his full body without the robe and the blankets, everything on him. And I was just like, enough is enough. I was like, enough is enough. I called my aunt and my grandmother. I said, I'm signing this letter. I was like, it's time to let him go. And the next day, um, they called, the hospital called me and told me that his heart rate was dropping. So I rushed to the hospital. And um, I'm the first one that gets there. And um, my dad was still alert. You know, he wasn't just laying there, just eyes closed and just not. He was alert. And so I was like. Could he talk? No, he couldn't okay. talk. Because um, he also had a, a trach put in. So he couldn't talk. Um, and his voice just kind of went after a while. So um, I come in the room and, you know, I throw on my gear or whatever, drop everything. I go right to the bed. I'm like, Daddy. And his eyes just kind of open. He looks at me and I was like, hey, I was like, I'm here. And he's like, he just kind of nodded like that. And I said, uh, <laughs> I was like, not much longer. Mm. And he just nodded. Um, and uh, the thing that was comforting about, I know people are like, how is it comforting watching somebody die? Um, prior to that day, my father had went through ice, what's called ICU hallucinations. Um, and I would see him sort of start to have these almost like panic attacks where his eyes would be shifting really quickly around the room, like he was scared. And when he got like that, I would just kind of come to him and I would take his hand and put it to my face and be like, you're good. It's okay. We're in the hospital, you know. And I had asked him, I was like, "What are you? are you scared of something? He nodded. Yeah, this was prior to that day of his final, his final day. And this time when I went, um, I asked him if he was scared and he shook his head no. And that was extremely comforting yeah. um, to me because I didn't want him to be scared. Yeah. Um, I had my Bible. Um, I am not, uh, look. <laughs> she about to say she's not a very yeah. religious person, huh? <laughs> Y'all working on me, but um, I do have a very real relationship with God and I know how to go to the word. And so I was just reading different things um, that the Bible says about heaven and, and just the like just the transition. And he had accepted Christ and all those kind of things um, went while like prior in his life. But we 
made sure he did it again while when he was alert in the hospital. But anyway, um, I asked him if he was scared, and he said no. Or didn't say no, but he shook his head no. And then he just started to kind of look past me. Like, I was there, but you were seeing something he else. was seeing something else. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm just over here just like, I love you. Da, da, da. And he's just looking past me. And I'm, I like kind of turn around like maybe my grandmother walked in or something, but no. And he just looked at whatever he was looking at. He just had peace all over him. And I was like, daddy. And I kept saying, daddy. And he finally looked at me and I was like, do you see angels? And I promise all of you, he nodded like this. And that was the most beautiful um I said I was not going to cry. Trust me, I'm about to about to okay. beat you to it. That was the most um beautiful can gift. Can you give me some napkins? I mean, uh Kleenex, please. That was the most beautiful gift. Just get the whole box. That um God could give me in that moment. Thank you. That was the most beautiful gift that God could give me in that moment because a lot of people do not get that. Yes. Um, and I was blessed to have that. And so finally that, you know, his heart rate started to go down. Other family members, you know, my little sister, everything, everybody started coming and stuff. But I'm glad that I had that moment with him because I feel like if it had not just been him and I, I might not have been able to get that confirmation yeah. that he was okay. And that he was at peace and that he was seeing the right images. Um, and so I put some, after, you know, everybody kind of came in to say what they needed to say. You know, sometimes people start to get a little, uh, people start to get like a little emotional yep. and angry. Yep. But I didn't want him to hear that. So I, I had my AirPods and I put my AirPods in his ear and I turned on some like, meditation like calming like water i wanted him to trans you know transition peacefully without hearing us in our moment of grief so he passed that's smart rochelle rochelle yeah, okay that's that's beautiful Thank that's you. beautiful to have the wherewithal to think and do that like that's continue so at three forty-five on september 25th he passed and um it was really the most, I, like, I can't, to watch some, he was in the hospital five months and 29 days. Because remember I said, this was April when he went in. It is now September 25th. Five months, 29 days he fought. And I was, I am so proud of him. Um, and when I talk about my father and how I was there and the things that I was doing, um, a lot of people think, um, like, gosh, we had this close yes. relationship, you know, gosh, he must've been at every track practice and band competition and prom and this and that. And it's like, no, my parents, my mother was 17. My father was 18 when they had me in Chicago. I was a, I was a baby that was born out of love. My mom told me that after his death, um, that I was true. They were truly like teenage, like sweethearts. Um, and they were virgins. 
So <laughs> mess that up. Um, <laughs> They're like, oops, there but, it is. But, um, you know, we didn't have the closest relationship because a lot, you know, people, family, you know, people upset. My mom was a straight A student, this and that. And now she's pregnant and her life is over. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, so he and I didn't have the closest relationship, especially after my mom went on to uh, medical school and we and we left Chicago. But I always loved my father um, and I always was very happy when I was with him. And when I was 20 years old, we finally had a conversation and I I could keep it real with my dad. I could curse with my dad like it was cool. And I let him know how I really, really felt about his absence and what that had done to me as a young girl and, a, and as a young woman. And he told me his truth. And from that moment on, all was forgiven. And there was not a month that went by that I did not hear from him at least twice, where we would talk on the phone. Um, we would laugh every time I would come to Chicago, you know, he's picking me up from the airport, different things like that. And so how many um, years was that? So from the time that I was 20 until, what, 2020, I was 38. So about so 18 years. About 18 years. That's good. Yeah. So it's almost like those the first 18 weren't the best, yeah. right? Yeah. But the next 18 were, and it was actually the point in my life where I actually really did need him. You need it, yeah. Because I'm going into this, I'm dating, I'm, I'm having relationships and all this other, you know, would all you these things. Would you talk to your things. dad about this stuff? Would you say, I'm dating this guy, what do you think about this? He said this and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I would talk to him about and you're it. Checked, you're, he always told me that ain't, you know, I ends, can't say ends, what he said. He said ends ain't S-H-I-T. Right. <laughs> I'm a dad, so I know yes, exactly what he said. Guard your heart, baby yeah. doll. That's what he would tell me all the time, which I fail at miserably. But um, what did that? What does that mean? We did an episode called "Guard Your Heart" uh, in last season. So, what does that mean when he said "guard your heart"? Do you truly understood what he mean? What, what he meant by that? I mean, I get it. <laughs> but you're like, hey, that's easy to say. It's that's easy to say than done. Than done. And I would tell him, like, I don't know. What do you mean, guard your heart? But I guess you know. Now that I'm 40, it's just not giving too much, not expecting too much, not getting too excited, not not showing too much, you know, those kind of things. And that's good. And and it's good, but it's also bad because now I now don't you're show savage. nothing. Now you see, so me and you talked about that. I said, now Rochelle, now you done turned into a full blood, a full blooded savage. And I said, hold on, now you got to have some little emotion. Like, mm -mm. I said, you can just cut people off like that. Yep. I was like, how did you get like that? Because, all right, shout out to uh, one of our mutual friends, Brittany. Brittany told okay. me one day, she said, she said, uh, Rochelle, I just really want Rochelle to be with somebody. She's such a sweet person. She's like a, an amazing woman. I was like, really? She was like, yeah, she is. She's just one of the most sweetest people you could ever meet. I was like, you're talking about the Rochelle that be on Clubhouse? Stop mentioning Clubhouse. No, because you a thug <laughs> on Clubhouse. That's, a, that's how I knew you. That's where I met you at, was on Clubhouse. I said, oh, this girl right here, no, she, ooh, she mean. And then she she was like, no, I'm telling you, she's a very sweet person. I was like, when, where, how, what, why? Because I've never seen it. <laughs> and then I got to know you, and I was like, oh, she's a little teddy bear. You know what I'm saying? But then you, <laughs> but then you get to talking to you, and then you start finding out them savage ways. I'm like, okay, she, she just, she's just a thug. That's balance. You're a pretty thug. Thank you. <laughs> That's what you. Are. Thank you. I'm a. So, so when you said you went all the other way, what made you go the opposite direction from being this? you know, when you say not being able to guard your heart uh, to who you deem yourself now? Uh, pain, hurt, 
it's a wall. It's a defense mechanism. Um, and it has worked. <laughs> it has worked. Um, I just hope that she said, and it has worked. It's worked. Let's, let's be clear. I have saved myself a lot of sleepless nights Good. and tears and text messages and pull ups and all <laughs> pulling up on people. Like I have saved myself all of that by guarding my heart. Um, and not expecting too much or giving too much too soon. And I think I've said this to you before yeah. where I am the person that whatever a man says he is able to offer me, I expect nothing more mm -hmm. and nothing less. I do not try to convince. <laughs> I do not try to change. <laughs> I do not try to cook my way to your heart. I do not try <laughs> to anything. Whatever you say, like, look, you know, I like you and everything, but I ain't really trying to do all that. But I mean, you know, we can go on these vacations or we can, you know, I could pay your rent. Oh, okay. Well, if that's what you're able to offer, then <laughs> that's it. Great. You'll be a really great friend. Um, <laughs> that's it. But I also know that. I can't do that because it's going to get in the way of probably the real thing coming along. But, you know, I, I have operated in that space for probably about, probably you, you, about. You, you can fall back like you were sitting. Oh, okay. You were you comfortable. You was getting comfortable. Um, you were going probably to about five, about five years I've been operating in that space where I'm able to receive what you are able to give. And then when I'm done. You'll be done. I'm done. <laughs> Yeah, I'm done. That's why I was talking about your cutoff game. Your cutoff game. You'll block. You'll block somebody. Move on. Yeah, I will. So yeah. So my dad told me guard my heart. I ain't never I, know nobody to block somebody. From, hold on. I ain't never know nobody to block somebody by email. You will block somebody's email. I said, Rochelle, how you blocking people? I ain't never heard nobody say that. Because you have to cut off all contact. <laughs> Okay. I didn't know you can block somebody's email. You got Google. Google it. How to block on Yahoo. Like, <laughs> and it'll tell you everything you need to do. Because at some point, you know, it, it sounds good and it sounds fun, but all those situations at some point turn toxic. Yeah. Because it's not really who I am. There and it it's is. not really what I want. So at some point it starts, it does get toxic because I'm like, I get irritated. Like you're able to do all these things for me. Yet give me what I deserve. So, nah. So then I got to block you from everything. Because if you don't, we all know. They like to circulate. They like to come back around. And I am just going ahead and putting up this shield for you not to circulate back into my life. Because I know what you're bringing and I'm done with that. I'm on to something else. That's interesting because even in this uh, journey of self-discovery, you recognize what you ultimately desire. And then you come to this come to yourself moment where you say, I'm operating less than what my expectations are and desires. Because initially you said when a guy shows me who he is, basically, this is all I got to offer. You'd be like, all right, I'll play that game for you a little bit. But then even that's short lived because you go, that's not really who I am. I really want the full package. I want somebody that that can I can find security in all areas and instead of a la carte in these 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 securities where I have a guy that may pay my bill. I may have a guy that may be great sexually. I may have this guy that I go eat with. I may have this guy here and you're and you have all these different extensions of guys. And but what you ultimately want is your person instead of these fragmented people. You know why I deal with that? Let's be 
We gonna keep it a hundred. Come on, that's what we are. We keep it lit on here. Bored. Talk about it. I do things and fool with people out of boredom. <laughs> yeah. And so because I'm bored and you know all this and isolated and yeah. going through my grief and I'm vulnerable. Yeah. And I'm bored. And so I'm like, let me just go over here and be entertained for a minute. But then I'm like, oh, I don't want that. It's annoying. I'm done. Blocked. Blocked for life. That's what this, this, um, I'm going to give a shout out real quick on Clubhouse. It's a woman named Kim Cuts, and she says block for life. And I just, and it's the funniest thing. She says she blocked people life. Yeah. She's like block for life. I love it. It's the best, the best little phrase ever. Um, So I have to give her a shout out because that's her thing. I'm not going to steal it. Um, There it is. But yeah, block for life. And then, you know, you move on to somebody else. Block for life. So at some point, <laughs> this blocking and this, like, this fun and this, you know, just operating out of boredom with people, it's going to have to change. And, so you, and then you're going to shift into the spirit of intentionality. And then you want to entertain nothing that's less than what your expectations are. I and hope then, so. Yeah. Because I asked you this, Rochelle, I asked you, I said, do you want to be married? And what was your response? That's not the question. The question is, do I want to be a wife? And that was powerful when you responded like that. And so when when you said the question is, do I want to be a wife? Unpack that. So um, when I think about a wife, um, there's so many different roles of what a wife is. You know, people have their, you know, well, my as a wife, I do this. And as a wife, I do that. Um, but I hate when people talk about it from such a basic level. You know, when when guys ask me, like, oh, do you want to be married? Can you cook? Can you clean? You're basic. You have no depth. Go away. Blocked. Blocked <laughs> Block for life. life. <laughs> um, <laughs> you have no depth because one thing that I also shared was what my father taught me in his death about being a wife. Um you know, I look at marriage as a shared responsibility. I look at being a wife as my individual responsibility. Good. And when I think about standing there and saying I do to somebody, um, I'm thinking about I'm saying I do to all the horrible things that life can bring your way that you are not in control of. So your health, job loss, different things like that. So when I look back, you know, a few weeks ago, this is all part of this discovering self. I was like, my father, even though he wasn't there long and he told me to guard my heart and different things like that. And he didn't get to the point of seeing me engaged and walk down the aisle to give me that like fatherly advice. Um, he taught me three things. He taught me forgiveness. Mm. And the Bible says love keeps no records of wrongs. Yeah, He taught me sacrifice love is not self-seeking um he taught me patience love is long suffering so when i think about how long he suffered in the hospital when i think about that conversation we had when i was 20 and the forgiveness and i kept no records of wrongs though that forgiveness allowed me to be there in the worst moments of his life and when i had to make a decision to let him go I had to put self aside to do what was going to be best for him um, overall. And so that's how I think about when I say that I do to somebody. I'm thinking that in health, 
easy. Rich, yeah. easy. It's the poor. It's the, yeah. the sickness. And it's frustrating to me that people don't think about that. They just think about, what well, do you want kids? And, you know, can you cook? Can you clean? What, you know, what's your credit score? Like basic. Yeah. That's the easy stuff. Yeah. It really is. You know, I have a friend right now whose husband is going through some horrible mental health issues. I mean, borderline schizophrenic. Mm. Are you saying I do? To those worst moments? And she's sticking with him because that's her husband. Um, and she wants to help him and get him the help because it's not anything that's in his control. Right. It's the things that are in your control that you do wrong that then I feel like, okay, I might, we might be going to this courthouse, but for the things that are outside of your control, I do. And so a man can't ask me, do you want to be married? Because I'm looking at the duties of, do I, of the duties of being a wife and what I think a wife is. And I'm not looking at the cleaning and the, and all the cooking and all that kind of stuff. I'm looking at when this man cannot speak, when this man cannot make a decision, when this man is on his deathbed, do I? You know, um, <clears throat> that had to be the most substantive response that I've ever heard because oftentimes we always hear, do you want to get married? Hey, you want to be married? You want to be married? But to take the onus on us and say, do I want to be a husband? Do I want to be a wife? Uh, and you even likened it in the conversation when you say, people say, do you want to have kids? You know, do and, I want to be a mother? And you said, do I want to be a mother? Um, because it's a lot of people that have kids that aren't mothers. There's a lot of people who have kids but are not fathers. And so for you to say that, even that hit hard because I'm fathering two kids that whose mothers aren't present. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So just to say, hey, you want to be a mother, then you'd be like, yeah, but then your kids are raised by somebody else, mm -hmm. you know, because you don't want the responsibility of motherhood. And so it just gave me really deep insight and even understanding that to, um, and like I said, a couple of seasons ago, I unpacked the marriage vows because I said I stood before family and friends and I said these marriage vows, not even really understanding the meaning of it. I got so many responses from people, married people that said, you know, I never really even thought about the marriage you vows. You just up there for rich or poor <laughs> and sickness and health. I do. I do. I do. You were like, hold on now. What did I say again? Because when your challenge divorces are because those vows were challenged. Mm -hmm. That, we say these vows, but what leads to a divorce is when those vows are challenged. And they will be. Every, every, like every step of the way. And we have to understand that we said these vows, what does they, what they really mean? And, and the beautiful thing about it is when you talk about, you liken the journey of a wife to the role that you played as a daughter um, with your father, being the oldest daughter, being the person that was on his, at his bedside until he took his last breath. That's what marriage is. Mm -hmm. That's what marriage is. That's what, till death do we part. That's what that is. And so um, as heartbreaking as it is for you to lose your father, the, the gems, the takeaways from that experience is very encouraging to me because even what you just broke down about this is what this is. This is what I was taught from this experience. And you're going from a scriptural base on those nuggets and how you had to hold on to your faith during the most rocky mm. and darkest time to be like, God, you said you'll never leave me nor forsake me. My dad is dying. What do you have to say about that?
You know. Uh, now let me. I was angry. Oh, I know you was. I we was angry. Yeah. Um, I was, as I said, I did. So there were things that I was reading um, in the in the word prior to his death that made me think that my father was coming home. And I, gosh, I wish I could remember. It was something in Luke that I read, but I wish I could remember it. Um, but when um, it's, it was about restoring and healing um, something like that. And I just was like, oh, this is it. He's going to restore. He's going to heal. So when he passed, I was like, now, wait a minute. <laughs> I wrote a letter to God, put it in my Bible. I physically went into closets to pray physically. Um, it, it's not just a song. Mm-hmm. I actually went into closets and pushed aside the shoes and yeah. the boxes. And I sat in the closet and I broke and I prayed for my father to be restored. So when I was, when we did a balloon release, you know, black people always got to do a balloon release. When we did did the balloon release, um, I remember standing, we were at the hospital because his friends and people came and and, um, we were at the hospital. And I remember saying that, I talked about that scripture and how I thought he was coming home, but I realized that the five months and 29 days that my father spent in the hospital were between him and God. There was a reason why he was not able to speak and communicate because that time was for him to get right with God. And there's this machine um, that he was on called ECMO. And it's basically uh, a machine that uh, rotates like blood out of your body and it oxygenates your, your blood. And it's just this blood just constantly flowing through and, and just oxygenating over and over. And when I one day I looked at that machine and something about it was very spiritual to me. It was like a cleansing. And that five months and 29 days that my father spent on the hospital and then he was on ECMO for about the rest, about three months and 29 days. Um, he went through a spiritual cleansing. And that's why when he had that moment of fear and then he had that moment of, of peace. peace. Mm. And that Mm-mm-mm. is what when God, when I was reading that word and it was saying, sounding as if he was coming home, it was really God telling me he's coming home to me. Thank God, you know, and this is what I'm doing to, to prepare him. Um, to transition back to me. So that's how um, I looked at that situation. And you said for three months, 29 days, he was on what, that machine? On ECMO. It, it might have been, It might. he might have went on ECMO a little bit sooner, but I don't, I really think he went on ECMO after about eight weeks in the hospital. So, yeah. About three months? Mm-hmm. So you was keeping record of all these, these numbers and days and all that stuff, huh? Yeah, I, I was, because I was, Every day I would call the hospital. I'd be like, oh, what's the ECMO? Are we up, down? Where are we? What's his, you know, all these numbers that I was, and I would take all this information back to my mom because my mom's an anesthesiologist. So I would take all this stuff back to my mom and be like, what's this mean? Translate. What are they talking about? Um, and that was really helpful. And I can't thank, whew, I cannot thank my mother yeah. and my stepfather and my grandfather and his wife enough because the fact that I was able to have a home, 
have cars that I needed because I was in New York. I had no car. So come home to my grandfather's house, jump in his car and drive and just be on my way. Like I, my mother making me breakfast, like my family and my friends were so supportive. I remember one day I woke up and I had all these flowers delivered um, to my mom's house. Like my friends had just sent roses and tulips and it had to be like six and they just kept coming to the house of people supporting me. Um, so I'm so grateful for that. I, I mean, I'm grateful for all of it. And um, I'm grateful that I was able to exercise forgiveness yeah. so that um, I could be there, you know, during that time. And it, like you said, it taught me a lot of lessons about what, who I really am. And the fact that you can't come to me on no, can you cook and clean? <laughs> Block for life. Block for life. You know, I it's, it's like my... When someone does get me, they're going to understand that they have gotten somebody that has thought about the absolute worst of everything. So when you get on your knee and when I say I do, you know that I'm saying I do to the real horrific things that happen in life. So when someone gets you, they will get you. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, listen, how can people connect with you? Follow me on Instagram because I need to get my followers up. Amen. Um, no. Uh, <laughs> but no, you can follow me on Instagram. Um, I don't know how many followers or how many posts I'm going to have at that time because you know yeah. I'm going through this like A cleansing, cleansing, purging. Um, but people can follow me at Rochelle Ritchie on Twitter, Instagram, Clubhouse. Um, Where are you most active? Instagram. Okay. Yeah. I like to post uh, Insta stories of puppies and. <laughs> And TikTok. So if you come on my Insta story, you're going to laugh because you're going to laugh. You're going to be like, oh, because that's what I'm looking at. I love to laugh and I love any kind of little furry creature. (laughs) So your stories. Well, listen, Rochelle, people saw a side of you that they never seen before today. And And I I didn't use one curse word. You didn't cuss at all. Look at you. (laughs) I remember one time I was talking on the phone. I said, I said, oh, we talked the whole conversation. You didn't cuss. And you was like, well, I did say one curse word. I said, what did you say? And you was like, I said, whatever. And I was like, well, it's a start. (laughs) Look, I'm from the south side of Chicago. Look, sometimes we just... The whip, like you should hear my family, and nobody's angry. No one's gonna fight. We're just having a conversation, but it's in my it's in my DNA. But I, you know, when I get on camera and stuff like that, I I tone it down, and I don't like really going off on people. But sometimes it, 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 you gotta let powerful. them know. Yeah, they just they just need it, huh? You look sometimes. You, look, Peter, hello. <laughs> I see you to be in the Bible, huh? <laughs> that would have been Peter. Yeah, cutting off people's ears. <laughs> Well, listen, Rochelle, I enjoyed talking to you. I'm glad that you kept it lit. You're living intentionally and transparently. And it's okay that you're on your journey of self-discovery. That's what this whole podcast was for with me. Is I said, journey with me as I discover, uncover, and recover love. And the first part of that was discovering who I am after going through a divorce. Then after that, going through this toxic situationship that almost destroyed me. And uh, I said, okay, who am I? This because this is this this is crazy. Why did I put up with that for so long? Who am I? Um, and so God instructed me to start this podcast and healing from the world. And so I love it when I get people like you who says, listen, I don't know the answer. 
I'm on this journey. I'm trying to figure out who I am after this loss of employment, uh, loss of my, my my father, loss of a friend, you know, all this, this loss. And you said, now I'm tired of losing. I want to really position myself in my life to win. And uh, it starts with me discovering who I am. So thank you so much for joining me on the Dear Future Wifey podcast. Hey, y'all give it up for my homie, Rochelle Richie, y'all. Thank you. <laughs> Man. The importance of discovering self, I mean, in order for you to be any good for anybody else, you got to first know who you are. So a lot of times we're out here looking for our future spouses, but we don't even know our own identity. So it's important for us to discover self. Now, here's my favorite part of the podcast where I speak to my future wifey. Dear future wifey, my face is flushed with anticipation with knowing you'll join this journey and do life with me one day. Your skill set and intellect are unmatched. I think I'm pretty dope, but we'll be blue magic together. And I'm not talking about the hair grease. And if you don't know what blue magic is, then our first order of business is to watch American Gangster. LOL. It's crazy how much I'm looking forward to simply holding you. No words spoken, just holding you. Allowing my mind to venture into the grace the Lord had by gifting me with our union. Holding you while withholding nothing. Bearing it all for you, no walls, purely all of me, your future hubby. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Dear Future Wifey podcast. Remember, be lit, live intentionally and transparently, and don't stop loving. Make sure to subscribe to our Dear Future Wifey YouTube channel. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. We welcome your support. Simply share our podcast with your friends and family.